Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. John Hendrickson of The Atlantic is one of the most thoughtful and eloquent young political journalists in our country. He also has grappled for his entire life with a neurological disorder called stuttering. In 2019, after interviewing Joe Biden about his battle with stuttering, Hendrickson wrote a piece that was a sort of coming out of his own. That piece went viral and led to his moving memoir, Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. By writing this remarkable, gripping book, Hendrickson has shed light on the struggles of people with disabilities and given voice and hope to all who share them. Here's our conversation. John Hendrickson, it is great to see you. You and I have been carrying on a conversation for some time on text and especially since you published this book, Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter, which I think is an extraordinary, extraordinary book. I, I'm so eager to uh, to sort of talk about it, but I want to talk about the journey that informs it first. And, you know, let's start just basically basic background on, on your family. Uh, your dad is a journalist, and a professor and a uh, of nonfiction writing and at the University of Pennsylvania. Your mom was a nurse, a pediatric nurse. Is that right? Yes, both those are correct. Uh huh. You come from a Catholic family. You uh, talk about your dad's experiences as a kid. I guess he comes from my neck of the woods uh, in the Midwest and in, in, in Illinois. But he went down to Alabama to be in a seminary. Is that right? <laughs> yes. He and his older brother went down when they were barely teenagers. And they were in this seminary preparing to be priests for several years. And neither of them made it all the way through. And, and many of their classmates also left before becoming priests. And this was in mid-century America. This was decades before the Boston Globe spotlight investigation. But one of the reasons why my dad left is, is because he and his classmates were dealing with inappropriate sexual behavior on account of the priests. And you found that out much later, obviously. This was something that was kind of a family secret, as it was in many families. 
Yeah. And so I was about 13 or 14 when the Boston Globe blew the lid open on this mm-hmm. systemic scandal. You know, obviously this issue, it had it had occurred for decades or centuries before that. But I think a lot of people naively believed it to be, you know, quote, a few bad apples. And the Boston Globe team really revealed it to be this systemic problem among the Catholic Church. And my dad had actually written a memoir about his experience called Seminary. And that book came out in the 1980s. And around the time of this headline news in Boston Globe and elsewhere, my dad was asked to write about his own experience. And so that became sort of the first time I learned the fuller story of why he never became a priest. Obviously, if he had become a priest, he would have never met my mom. He would have never had me. I wouldn't exist. Yeah, I guess that's the that's the uh, very upside of the downside. Uh, <laughs> but um, the reason I ask you about it, and we'll talk about it a little more later, is you write about sort, and you went to Catholic schools. You write about this element of Catholicism in which I, I don't know the phrases you use, whether guilt, shame, and secrecy were kind of endemic to the culture, and it kind of relates to to you and how how your family dealt with you and your and your challenges and I want to talk about those those challenges first of all, explain what stuttering is because it is a neurological condition and i i don't even i think like uh, so many uh things that evidence its itself in behavioral manifestations or what appear to be behavioral manifestations, they're misunderstood and create all kinds of ancillary challenges. So just talk to me about what what stuttering is. Well, I think that guilt, shame um, aspect you touched on a minute ago is a good place to start. And just as it pertains to my family. My family loves me deeply, mm-hmm. cares about me deeply. My mom shuttled me to all sorts of therapy appointments and just never gave up at any at any stage of my life. And like a lot of kids who kids who stutter, particularly of the millennial generation. And generations above that, Gen X, boomers, et cetera, most of us as kids didn't get the optimal form of therapy. Most of us got what is called fluency shaping therapy, in which the only goal is to talk fluently or talk smoothly. And as years go by, if you keep blocking, pausing, having repetitions in your speech, all 
types of stuttering, then you kind of feel like a failure. And a lot of these therapists told families, see, told parents, told everyone not to talk about it, like kind of, kind of ignore it. Don't blah, blah, blah. Or they told them to remind your kids to take your time, take your time, use your techniques. Neither of those approaches are great. If you're constantly telling a person who stutters to take their time, it can feel like nobody's listening to what you have to say, but they're only listening to the way that you say it. Mm-hmm. And it can kind of feel like they're carrying around a little census clicker and like tracking every time you stutter. And then you, and then you really live with a lot of anxiety around that. And probably the anxiety just makes it harder. Yes. So nervousness and anxiety are not causes of stuttering. This is a neurological disorder with a genetic component. And it's about neural pathways in the brain, neurotransmitters. It's brain chemistry. And for a percentage of kids who stutter, they can effectively go to therapy and do certain things to quote unquote, rewire their brain, retrain themselves how to talk. But for another percentage of people, no amount of therapy is going to change anything. And you're likely to stutter for the rest of your life. And all that you can do then is to try to learn to live with it, try to learn to manage it. But one of the ways most people, especially we're talking teens, college college kids, adults who stutter, the most common way of living with it is avoidance and to make your life a little smaller. And that's just not a great way to live. And so the part of this book is is really me trying to figure out what it takes to make peace with this part of yourself that you're taught at such an early age to hate. Yeah. I think one of the things about the book that's so important is it's so eloquent and beautifully written. And I think what it reflects is whatever fluency difficulties result from stuttering has no relationship to the quality of thought in someone's head. And, um, you know, I, I just, and I think people will see that. And most importantly, I think people who uh, are dealing with this disorder uh, will see this. And I think it'll be really inspiring to them. But let me ask you just about, you say you make your world smaller. Part of that is kids, by definition, are cruel. <laughs> I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. That not, you know, not in, not out of bad nature or whatever, but it's, you know, and I can only imagine, I know you'd write about when you were in school, 
being taken out of class for therapy and feeling the sort of eyes on the back of your head as you left the room. And I imagine that you encountered teasing, bullying as a kid that encouraged you to make your world smaller. Yes, I think practically every person who stutters or any person living with a disorder or disability encounters that during childhood or, you know, even past childhood. And a big part of that, I think it comes from misunderstanding and it comes from this ongoing stigmatization of disability in our culture. Part of this newer movement toward normalization and representation in the disability community is all aimed at destigmatizing and trying to prevent these these various aspects of ourselves as purely aspects of ourselves. You know, it could be the fact that I have brown hair, brown eyes, and this is how I talk. And it's hard to to approach it neutrally like that and matter of factly like that. It really takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of self-acceptance. And I'm optimistic that younger generations are growing up in a world in which certain differences are less stigmatized. But I think it takes time. And I think it takes just this this kind of reset in your mind of okay, I'm going to, I'm going to come on your podcast. I'm going to talk with you. And it's such an honor to talk with you here. Uh, And I have to tell myself, like, it's okay to, it's okay to stutter on the podcast. I don't have to judge myself on this perfect fluency or every time I have a block, every time I, I have a repetition that I'm failing, letting people down. It's, it takes a lot of work to get to that mental space. And I think it's, I think it's an active daily practice. It's not a, a light switch. You, you have to keep like practicing that every single day. Well, brother, first of all, it's an honor to have you and everything you say is worth waiting for. Uh, so uh, I'm just so I'm pleased to have you. Partly one of the reasons that I was drawn to you and your story, and I, I, I was attracted, we'll get to how you burst onto the public scene a little bit later. But, uh, you know, I have a daughter who has a different challenge, who has epilepsy, but epilepsy manifests itself in, in ways that people don't know how to deal with either. And she was subject to the same stigmatization as a child, and it was painful. And so much founded in people's discomfort with what, what, with the, what they didn't understand. So I appreciate your advocacy for the broader community as well. We should talk about relationships. You know, I was interested that, I mean, you, you know, you, everybody, when they reach adolescence, begins to look around and say, gee, I, that's a 
cute gal. That's a cute guy. That's a, I might want to hang with them. I was interested that, that you wrote that you found some refuge in AOL Messenger where you can talk to people without having to deal with the challenges that stuttering created and essentially give them a true picture of yourself without those obstacles. That was important to you. You picture high school and a, a group of kids hanging around the lockers in a little circle and people telling jokes and yes and on a joke like improv and it's uh it's a battle of wits it's a, it's a little competition it's how people are uh carving out identities and how they're saying this is me and so much of that be it jokes or just be it even normal conversation it's all built around timing it's all built around confidence it's 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 mm-hmm. these these aspects that make talking with a disability with a disorder really hard and so i kind of felt like i could i can never be one of those guys doing that during the day but at night when everyone would be on AIM, I I felt like, okay, this is my chance to prove who I really am. And I type fluently, you know, I don't type out sentences that contain blocks or pauses or stutters. And, and just being a person who's always loved writing and reading and journalism, English, I, I've always found typing sentences relatively easy and it was such a balm especially to be talking with girls at that age and being able to say or try to say you know witty or interesting things in that forum that i knew i could never do in person and part of this book is about those Bombs and, and those escapes and oasis. Another one for me was music. I always yes. love live music and playing music and just listening to albums. And it it's important to find those outlets as places where you feel connected to your truer self. It's interesting. You you write that when you sang that you didn't stutter. That singing somehow was a bomb in and of itself. And I'm wondering what, why you think that is. That's also real brain chemistry. When we sing, we rely on a different neural pathway than we do for conversation. There are loads of musicians who, are, who either are or were people who stutter. Bill Withers, Elvis Presley, Kendrick Lamar, Noel Gallagher of Oasis, Carly Simon, just goes on and on and on. There are also loads of actors and actresses who either were or are people who stutter because recitation and memorization rely on a different neural pathway. Emily Blunt. James Earl Jones, 
Samuel L. Jackson, just goes on and on and on. And so I, I dig into some of that neuroscience in this book and try to understand it. Uh, but it's endlessly fascinating. And I love, I love karaoke. I love to get up there. I'm not a good singer at all, but I love to just get up there and like belt out a song. And I, I never even worry about the prospect of stuttering. That's so interesting. You know, James Earl Jones, I saw an interview he did with Dick Cavett years ago. You may have seen this. And Dick, and he said, uh, people say you must love your voice. He said, I, I hate my voice because if I love my voice, it would be the most faithless lover I've ever had. And, you know, he spoke very movingly about his experiences. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. You also play baseball, and we're really good at it. Did that change your relationships? Yeah. I mean, any time where you can prove yourself capable in one area, be it on the baseball field or writing or singing, anything, it it's, it's like getting up there and saying like no this is me not the kid who is red faced with pool of sweat who is blocking twitching who can who can't read a sentence out loud in class that's not all i am there is more to me and it it can really f- feel like that's all you are because those moments are so definitive and they're so different than how other people in the class look or sound but there is more there can i ask you about your daughter's experience with epilepsy 
were you or was she taught to self-identify as a person with epilepsy and to to tell others she intuitively did that in fact she still does that even though uh, i mean epilepsy dominated her childhood she had uncontrolled seizures for 19 years and and with those seizures which started when she was seven months old uh, tremendous damage to her developing brain so she has significant disabilities and and i think because of that and because she's smart and aware of that she always would talk about her epilepsy whenever she met people because she wanted them to understand in some ways you know you know, on the one hand, you may think the impulse is to want to be like everyone else, but she knew in some ways she wasn't or isn't. She knows she isn't. So she sort of identifies what her challenges have. But we've sort of made this a cause. My wife started a foundation that's 25 years old this year called Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy that became the largest private epilepsy research foundation in the world. And it was all out of because we couldn't get any answers, and for years we couldn't stop these seizures. And there were all kinds of behavioral ramifications because um, of uh, not just the seizures, which had an impact on her moods and so on, but uh, the medications she had to take to try and deal with them, which often were very distorting. At one point, uh, made her psychotic, and she had to be hospitalized. I mean, it was really an ordeal, but the stigma piece of it is very familiar to me, especially with kids who just don't understand, you know, what they're seeing or why it's happening. And they don't, every kid is sort of insecure. You talk about the kids around the locker. Uh, I mean, it's all a, it's all a bunch of kids who aren't really confident, trying to be confident and show their confidence. And so that's a tough environment. But listen, man, you're a journalist and now you've got me going. (laughs) <laughs> but I want to return to your story because there, there are a number of things I want to talk about. You went to Penn State and you took courses. Yes, I see your, yeah, man, you've got a, you've got a, a hot team in the uh, March Madness. You took a, some, a writing course that really changed your life and you plunged yourself into, into writing. And I, I had two questions around it. One was, how much of that was the realization that there was this way in which you could fully express yourself without reservation or concern and that you were really good at it. And how much of it was your dad was a very distinguished journalist and how much of it was sort of kind of signifying your connection to him? Yeah, well, growing up, uh, my family lived in D.C. and my dad worked at the Washington Post. And as as a kid, he would sometimes take me on reporting trips with him. And so I got to watch how it was done, watch him go up and interview people. And and then several days or a week later, the Washington Post would plop out on our doorstep and you open it up and my dad's name's in there, the article's there. And to me as a second grader, that was just the coolest thing in the world. And I always loved magazines in particular. I I subscribed to Rolling Stone and Spin at a very young age. And I was a kid who 
saw the movie almost famous and just wanted that life. Um, but part of me this whole time too was like, how are you ever going to be a, a journalist? How are, are you ever going to ask people questions if you can't talk? How are you going to get a job? And it it was hard to quiet that voice and battle that voice. But as I moved through college and I began taking a lot of writing classes and specifically like creative nonfiction, like narrative journalism classes, reading classics by Hunter Thompson, Susan Orlean, these, these just great new journalism pieces. It it was the only thing I wanted to do. And so I just kind of kept at it and I and I applied for some internships and tried to this make it happen. And I got rejected from lots and lots and lots of places. But one of the editors who took a chance on me was this great journalist, Ray Rinaldi at the Denver Post. And I moved out to Colorado for an internship and that uh, changed my life. And I, yeah. I got my, like, got my teeth as a newspaper journalist, like yourself before eventually moving to New York and working at magazines. Yeah, you at first solved your problem by doing music reviews, which probably required less interviewing than other kinds of reporting. But I was interested, you, you, you wrote a, a profile of Jeff Tweedy, the front man for Wilco, a Chicagoan, so it caught my eye. Yeah. And one thing you noted was how comfortable he was in that conversation and how much that meant to you. Oh, yeah. So that interview, it was while I was an intern at the Denver Post. It was between my junior and senior year of college. And the paper's music critic at the time, Ricardo Baca, was on tap to do that interview. It was in, it was in advance of a new Woco album. And Ricardo knew that I was a big fan of Woco and and I was very knowledgeable about the band. And he walked up to my desk and said, you're going to do this interview and they're going to give you 15 minutes on the phone with him tomorrow. And I was, you know, not at all comfortable doing interviews over the phone and had largely avoided them altogether. And I, I didn't trust myself to get it done and i really wanted to back out of it i really wanted to tell him i can't do this no no but i ultimately just did it and i i think i ended up talking to tweety for 20 or 30 minutes and he just reacted to my stutter with total neutrality and treating me like any other journalist and 
we ended up having a great conversation with a lot of improvisation. And I tossed out some of my questions because I was just in the moment. And it was just, I, I really felt like a real journalist doing a real interview. And what I later discovered not long after that, as I kept doing more and more interviews, was that when people watched me stutter, heard me stutter, or just realized something was, you know, for lack of a better word, wrong with me, they let their guard down and, and almost forgot that they were talking to a journalist and then they would open up and, and I was getting more interesting quotes and stories out of people. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I could, um, do a whole show just on your career in journalism, being a freak about that myself. And, 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 a, a lot, we could have a long conversation about the, what, what's happened to local journalism in America. And you've seen it from a number of different perspectives, but I, I but we, I just want to cover so much that let me just summarize this by saying you did a couple of stints in Denver. You were at Esquire. You were, and when you, when you, you're after Denver, you went to New York. You mentioned you moved to New York. I'll get to the rest of your career in a second, but I just, I just thought of something because you, you wrote something that uh, really struck me. You quoted E.B. White, who said, that people from small towns go to New York City to avoid the indignity of being noticed. And obviously you were saying there was a certain comfort in that for you. Talk about that. New York to me has always just felt kind of like an old sweatshirt and kind of like a, like a, a puzzle piece fit. And to use one more com completely unrelated metaphor here, like the island of misfit toys, you know? Everybody who's here is, is people who want to be here. They, they're going after something and they're creative and they work hard. And in a lot of cases, it's people that have come from other parts of the country or other parts of the world and left the limitation of their hometown behind or try to just be another freak in the city for life. Yeah. And it's, it's so counterintuitive because the perception of New York is everybody's in a hurry and everyone's a jerk. Everyone's selfish. I haven't found that at all. What I found is that people are too busy to care about to, to too busy to judge you if you lack of a better word you know and so i would go to like this this great b h lunch counter dairy and it's loud and chaotic and fast and you got to kind of bark out your order and i'd have a hard time doing that like i i, I do it pretty much every restaurant and the Guys are just, they keep whipping eggs in the pan. They keep going and they're just, it's okay, you know? And there are so many tiny things like that, that it, 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 it really felt like moving here at the age of 24, it felt like I was 
coming home, even though I had never lived here before. And I've now been here 10 years. Yeah, I love that place, by the way. I grew up in New York. I was just there in the fall. So oh, I know I know exactly. <laughs> I felt a little intimidated by the whole ordering process there. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I think everybody does. You write about one kind of searing event, I guess all of which are learning events, but going to a comedy club with uh, your brother and his wife and and your girl, your then girlfriend, and having a comedian pick you out of a crowd just by happenstance and grill you as comedians do, and then sort of mocking you. That must have been a, a another one of those watershed events because you ended up talking to that comedian, right? Yes, and I. It's, it's one of those moments in which, okay, it's 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 embarrassing for me to be called out in a crowd and have to talk, you know, at the comedy cellar in Greenwich Village. But I've been in that situation or situations analogous to that hundreds of times. And I know how to live through those. It's, it's harder for your friends and family and even total strangers in the room. It's harder for them because of that secondary awkwardness. And everyone just kind of wants a moment to end. That happened several years ago, and I didn't have any idea if the comedian would remember that night or remember me, but part of this book is me tracking down a lot of people from different chapters of my life and interviewing them about moments, interviewing and interviewing them about the things we never talked about. So I was able to track down the comedian and we did have a pretty amazing conversation about it. And he said, I don't think anyone in the room was aware that you were a person who, person who stuttered. And he said, I think if, if you had told me right off the bat when I called on you, I think that would have changed everything. And what really jumps out at me about that night when I think about it is I was there with my girlfriend at the time and my brother and his wife. And my brother wanted to charge up there and protect me and, you know, go, go into big brother mode. And it was, it was hard for him to watch this happen. And he, you know, broke his heart. He, he, it's the last thing he wants for his little brother to be embarrassed. And both of us are adults now. We're, we're grown men and we have a great relationship as adults. We have great, great brotherhood. I would do anything for him. He would do anything for me. But like a lot of brothers, we didn't really get along as kids. And I think it was hard for him because he was watching a person tease me. And I think he, he understood parts of our childhood in kind of in a different way then. And part of this book is me talking to my family, my 
parents and my brother and, and sitting down and interviewing them and just sort of talking about the totality of our lives, the happy chapters, the sad chapters and everything in between. And we, we try to kind of understand each other in a way that we never did before. You also uh, talk about your romantic relationships, some of which were longstanding, and fell apart partly because of, of your working through the challenges that stuttering created for you. And then through, I guess, a dating app, you met your wife, who had her own struggles. Uh, talk about that, how you guys came together. Yeah, it was really cosmic because I had um, I had, had relationships and long-term ones, but I had never been on a dating app until about four or five years ago. And I was reluctant, you know, and it took me a while to actually do it. And within a week of being on there, I matched with Liz. And the, f the first night we met, for whatever reason, about 15 minutes into the conversation, I began opening up about being a person who, person who stutters. And I began telling her about this part of my life. And that was just a thing that I had never, ever, ever done before with friends, family, romantic partners at all. And Liz, like Tweety, reacted with total neutrality and understanding. And Liz told me about her own neurological disorder called dystonia, which is neuromuscular. And it can be cramps or spasms, muscle issues. And it got to the point where it kept getting worse and worse for her. And it got to the point where Liz could barely walk when she was in college. And she ultimately had brain surgery. They put two electrodes in her head, connected to a wire going down through her chest and a battery. And that allowed her muscles to work a little better. So we're there on our first date and Liz tells me about the incision on her head where you can look and there's a little scar. She's like, yeah, I had brain surgery. So we just instantly understood each other in this profound way and, and had been dating ever since the night and we're now married. And that night, that first night we met, it was about 10 months before I interviewed then-candidate Joe Biden about his journey as a person who stutters. And, and that was really the first time I ever wrote anything about this topic. And that this, this set me on the path to writing this book. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. 
It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You did a stint as the politics editor for Rolling Stone, and then you went to The Atlantic. I should first ask why politics. I understand the Rolling Stone part, giving your your history, but why politics? And then uh, let's talk about that, your idea for this Biden interview and how it came about. When I was at Esquire in uh, around early June 2015, a new top digital boss came in. I was working on the digital side mm-hmm. and he made a bunch of changes and he he said you're going to cover politics now and that's that and i was like okay and so that happened let's say june 1st 2015 and two weeks later donald trump rolled an escalator down and then politics i felt wonky person i did not have this institutional knowledge of the hill the way a lot of other people did I could approach politics from a cultural perspective, a pop culture perspective. And Trump bridged that gap and Trump really changed politics, obviously, that summer. So I I just really threw myself into it through the whole 2016 election. And then it got to the point in 2018 where I... Um, I was tapped for a job at Rolling Stone covering politics. And then a, a year later, um, tapped for a job at the Atlantic doing politics. And when I got there to the Atlantic, my first week, uh, our features editors, Denise, had asked me if I had any evergreen ideas tied to the 2020 election. And I said... Well, I've always been kind of curious about Joe Biden's life as a person who stutters because, because he talks about all these other aspects of his life and the American public is very aware of the that killed his wife. And, but a lot of people are not aware of this other part of Biden's life. You obviously know him, David, and you worked in the White House when he was there. Did you and him ever talk about this? No, and I wish that we had. And I tried for four years to get him to do this podcast because I wanted to talk about it. Uh, um, And uh, I I was, even though we've known each other and worked together, I was never uh, successful. But your piece uh, was extraordinary. And part of it was... You know, the the uh, the piece was called What Joe Biden Can't Bring Himself to Say, which was a kind of a double entendre. It was about both the fact that he still has issues with stuttering, but also that he really didn't want to acknowledge that. So, And you were surprised by that. When I 
reached out to his campaign in June 2019. I immediately told his press person, I'm a person who stutters and I'm interested in this aspect of his life and I'd like to interview him about it. And they kind of kept me at our length all summer. And then finally, at the end of, at the end of August, they said, okay, we'll talk to you about it. And I walked into the, that interview in his DC campaign office thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get it. You know, to use a journalistic phrase, but as our interview kept going on and you get past the 20 minute mark, 30 minute mark, 40 minute mark. And I keep asking him questions about his present day life as a person who stutters. He keeps pivoting back to childhood or he, or he goes another place. And so it, it dawns on me as we're now at the 50 minute mark. And I think I had just an hour. I'm like, he's not going to say it. This is not going to happen. And I left his office that day mad. I was mad at myself because I felt like I had <laughs> failed as a journalist. I didn't get the story, didn't get the important quote. I felt like I was letting down everybody at the Atlantic. It trusted me to go do this big interview. And there are tons of people at the Atlantic who are more qualified than me to interview the man who could be president. And I was mad at Biden because I felt like he wasn't being totally forthright with me. And it, it took me took me about a week to begin to get over that, get over that feeling. And I got back to New York and I was talking with my editor about the whole thing. And my editor said, why doesn't he want to talk about it? And that kind of changed everything. That changed the whole story. That changed the framing of the story. It changed my feelings and approach. And then it became more of a question and exploration of how can a person who has reached the highest levels of fame and power and achievement not want to talk about this one thing? Yeah. Two things about this strike me. One is he doesn't talk about it, but everybody else does. And and oftentimes in ways that are mischaracterized in, in much the way stuttering is often mischaracterized. But the other thing is that to me, it was a very humanizing thing. You know, I mean, the fact that he overcame that to, and to become president of the United States still dealt with it was a very humanizing thing. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him. But in a sense, it runs counter to everything that you've tried to achieve in terms of normalizing what is a neurological condition, a neurological disorder. And he seemed not to want, he seemed to treat it as a, as a defect or a, a, you know, a weakness that he didn't want to acknowledge. To be fair, prior to writing that article and researching the topic, reporting on it, I viewed this disorder in much the same way. And I never wanted to talk about it with anyone. And I didn't, I didn't bring it to the surface of my identity. Prior to doing that reporting, 
I wasn't aware that stuttering was protected under the ADA, that it could be qualified as a disability. Learning that rocked my world and kind of reoriented my whole sense of self. And it was only in the months and then years that followed the publication of that article that I began to try to destigmatize it in my mind. And um, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's, 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 it's a process. And so I don't blame him. I kind of understand him a little better now. I also think there's a big generational component here mm-hmm. too. You know, mm-hmm. Biden grew up in mid-century America again, where everything was pull yourself up by your bootstraps and beat it or bust. And so I think he, I think it's hard to unlearn those lessons and those certain characterizations when you're eighty, as he is right now. Yeah, just off of what you you just said. You went on television. You, your your piece created a sensation, and it went viral. That's when I became aware of you. Uh, not a, I, I, I'm sure I've read your political reporting, but that's when I became aware of of you and this issue. And uh, you went on MSNBC, and your book begins with the anxiety that you felt as you were in the green room, uh, prepared to go on national television to talk about this. But you did, and uh, and you went on CNN as well, I think, and you did a number of interviews. But you came home from that MSNBC interview. You report that you and Liz cried for for the milestone. I imagine that you had achieved. But a more a, an even more notable thing happened, and that's the response that you got to it. Writing that article and then going on TV and going on NPR and going on some podcasts, it. It completely overwhelmed me, and it, it sort of opened this floodgate of letters and emails and messages from people who stutter all over the world. They they were coming in day after day, month after month, just coming, coming, coming. You know, and I I, I continue to get them to this day, and they're total strangers. And a lot of them would begin, I never told anybody this, but, and then they would tell me their life story as a person who stuttered, or they were the parent of someone who stuttered, et cetera. And it just kept coming, 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 and people were just pouring their hearts out. And it was, it was incredible. And I read every one, I respond to everyone. But as these months passed, it, it made me think that there was more here and that there was a potential for a book. So I began thinking about a book. And my book is a reported memoir modeled after David Carr's memoir, The Night of the Gun. And so I went back and I interviewed people from my past, as I mentioned, but I also interviewed some of these people who had written to me. And I also tell their stories in this book. Yeah, about, uh, well, 2006, whatever that is, 17 years ago, um, I wrote a piece in the Chicago Tribune 
about my dad who who died by suicide. And I hadn't talked about it to anyone publicly for or privately, frankly, for 30 years. I was young when that happened. And I realized that later in life than I should have that, you know, depression is an illness and should be treated as such and not a defect of character. And that the very reason that I didn't talk about it, because I thought somehow that would blemish my father's memory, was the reason that he didn't go and get help. And so I wrote about it and I got this extraordinary outpouring. And what I realized, John, was what you've realized, which is by talking, we can help each other. By talking and sharing, uh, we can give hope and inspiration to others. And I just, I can't thank you enough for what you've done for writing this book and uh, for giving countless people encouragement to follow in your path and uh, not only live with the challenges that stuttering presents, but to find themselves and not allow it to defeat them or keep them from being who they can be. And so it's just, you said earlier, it was an honor to be here. It's an honor to have you. You're not only a great journalist, and I now that I'm a fanboy, I read everything that you write, but you're a remarkable human being. And um, I just urge everyone, if, if every, anyone who doubts that, I urge them to read Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. It's a brilliant and really remarkable work. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you so, so much, David. It was such a pleasure talking with you and an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.